Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, our text will be verse 15 through 17. And beloved, before I read the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Our gracious heavenly Father, we come again in the name of Jesus our Lord. We ask for illumination, we ask for understanding, we ask, O oh Lord, that we would be even be moved by this text. Lord, that if there is any way that we have forgotten how much you love the family of believers, we would repent today and commit ourselves to fresh and anew, Lord, working out the means of grace, Lord, in our homes. Lord, we pray that you would take this text of Scripture and, Lord, make it alive to us. May it answer many questions that we have. Bring clarity and bring understanding. And Lord, more than anything else, deepen our love and our adoration for a God that not only loves us, but even our homes. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I thought it wise to spend at least another Sunday morning in this text of Scripture based upon the conversations and questions that I received after last, more, last Sunday's sermon. I confess that there's, it, it, that the doctrine of covenant children is not a hard lesson to understand. But it has been made difficult to understand by the, the prevailing theological perspective that dominates our own country, and that is a hyper-focus on the individual. The individual. A hyper-focus upon the uh, evangelism of the world, and there's nothing against evangelism. I have nothing against evangelism. I have participated in it quite a bit, plan to continue to do so. However, what we are witnessing and what we have witnessed, and even what the statistics tell us, is that so many Christian homes are, in, are involved in the outward evangelism of the world and not what's going on in their home. These brothers and sisters that focus upon the individual as their sole object of their theology 
have a very truncated understanding of what God thinks about the home. What God thinks about the children in the home. That's what's so precious about the text before us. It's sweet. We have Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican recognizing the great, how great God's mercy is. The very depth of his grace is astounding because Jesus explains to his listeners that it was the Pharisee, the one who said he was the great sinner before God. It was him that went to his house, justified, astounding, I'm sure, the audience. But what a witness to the depth and the breadth of God's love and grace towards his elect. And and what was the result of this understanding? What happened? Well, these parents, these guardians were bringing the children to Jesus, recognizing the depth of his mercy, recognizing the depth of his love towards sinners. And they wanted their children to be blessed by him. They wanted him, as the text says, to touch them. Meaning that it wasn't just his touch, but it was his touch of favor. It was a touch of prayer. It was a touch of blessing. That Jesus would take these little children up into his arms and lap, and he would pray for them. He would pronounce over them his blessing. What a picture for us this morning to consider And brothers and sisters, I've already stated that I don't think covenant theology is hard. I don't think that the doctrine of covenant children is hard per se, but there are, there are things, the extenuating ideas and per, uh, prevalent ideologies that have made it difficult and confusing. This morning, I hope to clear some of that up. My, my goal this morning is to clear some of that up and to help us in application, how do we bring our children to Jesus? What does that look like today? Jesus is not here. We're not, we can't physically bring our children and have his physical touch. So what is it going to look like for us this morning to take and bring our children to Jesus? Well, there's a couple of things that I want to begin with. We've already introduced the text in its parts last Lord's Day. You can go back and listen to that if you like. This morning, I want to focus as an introduction on two texts of Scripture. And what I want to do by this is to demonstrate that the continuity of the Scriptures hasn't changed concerning concerning our homes, concerning what God thinks about our home, concerning his blessing upon our home, meaning we are not going to fall into that theological trap that somehow there's this deep chasm between the Old and New Testaments and that the New Testament excludes children while the Old Testament included the children. And that's a, that's a, a grave mistake to make. As you look at the scriptures, there are certainly discontinuities from the old to the new, but that's not one of them. That is not one of them. 
The text before us even demonstrates this. Jesus, in his mediation, in his role as mediator, is already preempting that he is blessing the children of his followers, of his disciples. He's already He's continuing that stream of grace that had started in the Old Testament and is flowing right on in to that New Testament dispensation. The first text of Scripture that I want us to see is Acts 2. Acts 2. Now, what is, what is it about this text that I find important for us this morning? Well, simply one thing. The Old Testament is not more glorious than the New Testament. The Old Testament was a covenant, was, an, was a testament, was an old covenant of shadows, of signs, of symbols. The reality of salvation there but not in its fullest extent, not in, it, in, the, in the full power that we would see after the coming of Jesus. And if you look at how Peter starts the sermon, we're not going to read the sermon, but I want you to see how he quotes. In verse 16, Peter quotes from Joel and listen to the prophecy that he quotes. He says, and there shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what's important about this prophecy well, what Joel is prophesying is the glory of the kingdom of Christ, the glory of the kingdom of God realized in Jesus, that when Jesus comes, the kingdom of God is going to take a more powerful, efficacious role in the earth and among God's people. What we find in the Old Testament with God's covenant people is the ebb and flow of, of falling away, coming back, falling away, coming back, falling away, coming back, and falling away. The prophecy of Joel is saying there's coming a day when there's going to be a greater power, a greater, if you will, efficacious salvation in Christ when he comes and he's going to cause what? Sons and daughters to prophesy well, walk in the ways of God. Now, you say, well, that's a stretch. Well, look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. 
Peter is continuing this federal idea that when God saves a people, he includes their children in that covenant. Now that's, that's important. Because too many Christians treat their children like rank unbelievers. And then they're astonished and horrified when they act like unbelievers. Now, beloved, I'm not here to tell you that it's easy raising covenant children. Those of us that have raised children and now have adult children know otherwise. That there are certainly battles that come in their lives with sin and the world and the devil. But there is an objective understanding the way we ought to see our children and our homes. And it ought to be biblical. And it ought to be founded upon the grace of God. It ought to be founded on the purposes and the promises of God. That is, brothers and sisters, listen to me. I am not going to advocate. In fact, I'm going to preach against. If you think your skill sets as a parent is going to save your children, you're fooling yourself. That's not to say you're not to be involved. That's not to say you ought to work at it. It's not to say you ought to be diligent at it. The salvation that you received by grace is the same grace that must be extended to your children. And that's why our work is not only in the outward organizing discipleship and prodding and, and hedging up the, our children, especially when they're little, but spending adequate time on our knees in prayer, in study, so that our children see not only the life of Jesus from the word of God, but they see the life of Jesus in mama and daddy. We want to get to that point. If you think I'm stretching this a little bit, let's, let's turn over to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter 7. You see, I believe that Peter's continuing to demonstrate that that covenant, that covenant that included the home in the Old Testament continues on into this dispensation of Jesus Christ and it's going to be a more efficacious dispensation we should expect more stability. We should expect more of our children walking in the ways of the Lord. It should cause us to, when we come to worship, to praise God even more that we live in this dispensation of greater glory when it comes to our children and even children's children. Paul goes so far as to say in verse 14 of chapter 7, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, brothers and sisters, is this Paul, is this the Apostle Paul calling a rank unbelieving child unholy? I mean, we should be appalled at such a thing. 
No, he's recognizing these covenant blessings. He's recognizing this covenant structure. And what Paul is saying and what Paul is teaching us and and what we're learning this morning is that this covenant structure holds even with one believing parent. It stands with just one believing parent, with one believing parent, whether it be the mother or the father, God considers the children of that union as holy. Holy in what sense? Well, covenantal, in a covenantal way. What does that mean? Set apart. Does it mean they're automatically saved? Of course not. Of course not. Our children have to be saved the same way we are saved. It's, now, it's, it, it comes typically different, particularly if we weren't raised in the church. Some of us weren't. Some of us come to faith later, and then our children have grown up in the church, and so they have a different environment and experience with Christ than we have per se. But we can all say this, that they come the same way Abraham came, and it is by faith. It is by faith. They are holy in that sense. They are set apart. Set apart in what sense? For these blessings bestowed upon them. Brothers and sisters, it is not accidental for a, a certain child. I mean, the children born in your home are planned out by God. And that may be some of the conversations you have when these children, as they get older and they can rationalize a little bit and you're talking to them and you can say, listen, God put you in this home to be nurtured, to be discipled in the ways of God. He put you under our care. Yes, we may be new believers. Yes, we may be stumbling along, but we're learning and we're growing in by God's grace. This is not accidental. We're here to, to, to nourish you and to plead God's grace and blessings upon you so that you what? Come to a day of recognizing God's hand in your life and you say, yes, I want to believe in, in the God of my fathers and mothers. I want to believe that this God is my God. The God of my mom and dad is now my God. God. The same God that cleansed them from their sin is the same God that will cleanse me from my sin. The same God that have mercy upon them as sinners will have mercy upon me. God, thank you that you put me in this home. I'd given a couple of you a testimony. I was having a passionate discussion about covenant children with a, a Reformed Baptist friend of mine, pastor. And, um, I mean, it was passionate and heated and fun. But at, the one, at some point, I finally said, listen, if, if, if these children are so wicked and so vile in your sight, why are you teaching them to pray the Lord's Prayer? How can you teach them to pray God as their father? Now, I want you to let that sink in. Should he teach them the Lord's Prayer? Absolutely. But for different reasons. And here's what he told me. Well, then I won't teach them the Lord's Prayer. 
Now, brothers and sisters, there's something wrong with that. There's something fundamentally wrong with his conclusion. Now, I'm not ascribing that conclusion to every Baptist, but he came to the wrong conclusion. Calvin makes the comment in this text of Scripture that these children are called covenantally holy. They are federally holy. I mentioned this last week when I talked about how we view different households. Now, when we talk about a Muslim household, when when we see parents that are Muslim, we identify the children as what? Muslim. But for some reason, we have a mental disconnect when it comes to the Christian home. A Christian home where there's believing parents should be considered what? A Christian home. It doesn't matter if the children outnumber the parents. Because based upon simple math and logic, it couldn't be called a children's home if there were more unbelievers in the home than believers. But that's not the way God's working here. Praise God. God works federally. God works covenantally. God works in a way when he, when, when we come to him by faith, he takes all that we have, all that will come to us, whether we have children today or not is irrelevant. You can, this applies to your future children of how you're going to see your home, that all that I have, all that's in my possession, even my children belong to God. There is a special relationship that God has with my children. And first and foremost, I need to recognize that. Why? Because it's a great stimulus to prayer and worship. <laughs> it's a great stimulus to prayer and worship. I love what um, one commentator uh, said about the Luke passage. He said, is there not a greater motivation to become a Christian if you're not than to see Jesus blessing the children of those who do believe in him? Amen. Listen, is there not a greater motivation? I mean, you want your families to, to be blessed of God. Is there not a, you may be here this morning and you've withheld, you just not, you're not fully committed, but is there a greater motivation for you this morning than to see God blessing the children of his believers than you to come this morning to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, here I am, bless my home, bless my children. Let me mention baptism, though this is not a sermon that related solely to baptism, but I need to mention this because I want to make sure we understand. We, we bapt, baptizing an infant in this church does not make that infant a Christian. We are already considered the infant a Christian. That's why we baptize them. It, baptizing the child does not make the child, quote, a Christian. We're recognizing the child as a Christian federally, as being in a Christian home. The expectation is that they will walk in the ways of their mothers and fathers, that they will walk, they will walk with the Lord like they walk with the Lord. 
And as they're continually brought to church, as they're continually prayed over, as they're continually encouraged, as they're continually admonished and corrected and all of those things, that they will be held by the grace of God and they will, will finish the course. And as Calvin says, they're owed baptism. They're owed it. It's theirs. What? By the privilege of God's sovereign birthing them into the Christian home. It does demonstrate, beloved, listen to me. It does demonstrate God's special care to them because they listen he did not choose to put them in the middle east in a home in a muslim home he put them in your home so that they would be nurtured in the ways of the lord when we talk about this idea of federal theology we're just talking about covenant we're talking about covenant we're talking about those things that relate covenantally. It's just like Adam was the federal head of mankind in the covenant of works. And when he fell, all mankind fell in him. That Jesus Christ is the federal head of the covenant of grace. And that if any, is gonna, if any will be saved, well, what must they do? Well, they must come to the head of the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ. You see, there's the idea and the logic is not sustainable. It's like, oh, well, I, I didn't sin. Adam sinned. No, you are in Adam when he sinned. And not only Adam fell, but all his posterity fell. You can say, well, you, how Ill, unreasonable is it to accept the, the sacrifice and the righteousness of Christ federally, covenantally, and you didn't die upon the cross? You didn't die upon the cross. You didn't offer a righteous life before God, but you, you are benefited federally by God's grace from that righteous life of Christ, by the imputation of his righteousness, by the union with Christ through the Holy Spirit and the illumination of the word of God in your hearts and the gifting of faith and repentance and all of those many other graces that come with saving faith. You see, brothers and sisters, it's consistent. This is a consistent theology. It is a biblical theology. It's a glorious theology. And it has a tremendous impact. If we started, if we, you know, again, I'm going to say this. This is more of a, I guess, um, a pastoral comment. But I've seen, sadly so, I've seen parents more engaged with the world, saving the world, than saving their children. That's not the way it ought to be. Your calling as a parent is to disciple those children. Is to teach them the things of the Lord. Is to teach them scripture to teach them a biblical and godly worldview and teach them their dependence and need upon Christ in every facet of their lives. 
So my point is, brothers and sisters, God's favor in this text is substantial, isn't it? It's substantial. It, 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 there's this substance about this text of Jesus blessing the children that moves us. If we have any sentiment in us whatsoever, it moves us when we see the picture, particularly those of us with children, even older children or even grandchildren. We're moved by the fact that these parents are bringing their children to Jesus for him to bless them because we would do the same thing. We would do the same thing. If it was recognized that out of the depth of his grace and his mercy towards sinners, we'd be the first in line for him to touch our children and to bless them. And not solely, and to use that just like we use the baptism in our child's life throughout their lives, recognizing, you know, there's a special privilege that has been put on our sons and daughters in baptism. And we have to remind them of that from time to time. And that's what it means to improve your baptism, to live in accordance of your baptism. Just look, you've been washed, you've been made clean, the Lord has put his mark on you. You need to walk in his ways and by God's grace, he has put us in your life. He's put me in your life to what? To sturdy you up and to help you persevere in, in these graces and in these blessings. It's not by your own strength at all because it's like, you know, these are the things you need to do, son and daughter. Listen, we don't want, we do not want to raise legalists. There is obedience. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. That obedience is the same as your obedience. It flows from God's grace. And if you have a child that is struggling with just constant, consistent obedience, what a, what a, a moment of prayer to sit down with them and say, you know what we need? We need more grace. Let's pray for God's grace. Let's pray for the strength of grace. Let's pray for persevering grace. Let's continue. And you know what we're going to do? What, Daddy? What are we going to do? We're going to be patient, and we're going to wait for God to answer the prayer. We're going to wait. We're going to wait upon the hand of the Lord. Okay. And I'm going to wait with you. And we're going to pray together. We're going to walk through this together. But we're going to wait upon God because it's God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. You can't do it, my son. You can't do it, my daughter. But God can do it in and through you. Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we're going to wait. We're going to be patient because it's not instant. And they need to learn that. If you've dealt with children that struggle with sin, as probably you have, then you may have even heard, well, I do pray and nothing happens. I pray and nothing seems to happen. It just, our prayer seems to bounce off the ceiling and, and I, I, I'm frustrated and I don't know what to do. And that usually comes with a great load of tears. 
because there's been a chain of discipline along the way. And, and brothers and sisters, it's not about, well, well, buck up. It's about let's patiently wait upon the hand of God. God's teaching you right now to wait. And that is something that many Christians don't even know in adulthood how to do. To wait upon the hand of God. And showing that to our children. Let's just wait. Let's wait patiently. Why, Daddy? Well, but, 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 but nothing's happening. These are the promises of God. These are the promises of God. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters. You say, well, yes, this is all like a, you know, it's all great and dandy. It's like a little storybook you, you're laying out here before us. But let me tell you something. What, it, it, you're going to plead the promises of God to these children. Let me ask you something. What do you have to plead other than the promises of God? Do you have anything else? No, you don't. You don't have anything but the promises of God to plead for yourself. And what we're doing is we're calling upon our children to plead those same promises for their own sake. That these promises are not just ours exclusively, but they belong to all of his children. So that's substantial. But there's also tremendous hope. There's also tremendous hope. And here's the hope. The hope is in the promise. This promise is for you and for your children, Peter said. This is the same promise that Paul talked about, that even in a household with one believing parent, that that child is holy before God. That's a promise. These are things we plead. These are things we lean on. These are the things we rest upon. That's where our hope is not in our own parenting skills. There is probably not a, a, a parent here with older children and grandchildren who doesn't wish we could go back and do some things differently. I have plenty of reasons to get, for that to be true. We don't look at our children and go, look at my children. Look, they're all sitting in church. That's because we were so good at parenting. No. The hope lies in the same hope that Christ displayed in the parable of saving the publican. That's the hope is God's mercy. God, be merciful to me and my posterity, my children. God, the same mercy you bestowed upon me, the same grace that you granted and filled me with, fill my children with. You know, I've seen, I've seen children come out of very, rough households and praise the name of God. And I've seen children absolutely apostatize from the faith of the best Christian parents, at least outwardly. What's the difference? 
God's grace. God's grace. It's all God's grace. It's God's grace for your salvation and it's God's grace for your children's salvation. The point is, beloved, is, is pleading these promises, clinging to these promises, exercising these promises, and resting in these promises for the same salvation that we possess for our children. And that's our hope. Our hope is to see that God's grace is made alive in their own lives and they too, they too, imperfectly walk as you do in the ways of the Lord. Loving him, resting in him, trusting in him, desiring to worship him, desiring to follow him, desiring his word, desiring his ways and all of these things. Well, let's talk more in particular about some of this application. And this will be the remainder of our lesson this morning. What is it to what does it mean to bring our children to Jesus today? Well, as I already mentioned, we have to take our children to Jesus in prayer. Prayer is a good work, beloved. And prayer is not an easy work. Prayer is a work, and it can be laborious. Why? Because you have to think through the prayer. You have to think through, what am I going to ask the Lord for? What what are the, the weaknesses? What are the propensities? How am I bringing my child to the Lord simply as, oh, Lord, bless them. Bless them, Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, I am not begrudging an immature father or mother that doesn't know any better. Do what you got to do. Do what you know how to do. But as we grow in our own faith, as we grow in our own understanding of the word of God, and as we grow in in perspective with our children and understand them better and better and better along the way, particularly new parents, we need to come to the Lord as we present our children to the Lord in in a very real sense. Lord, here is my child. We bring them to the Lord in prayer and we identify, Lord, these same sins in my child are the same sins I struggle with. That my own sins are magnified in the ways of my child and I'm pleading for them, Lord. Lord, I know the entanglement of this sin. I know the entanglement of anger, selfishness, lusts. Oh God, I see it in myself. I see these things developing, the greed, the anger, Lord, the the impatience. Oh come, have mercy, oh Lord, upon this child. Bring, oh God, your spirit into their lives and mortify these sins. Particular prayer. How else do we take them to the Lord Jesus? Well, we take them to Jesus by example. Now, we do this by saying, Lord, would you give me that strength? Lord, would you, would you mold and shape me into the father and the mother I need to be for this child? Now, they're all different, aren't they? They're all different. 
But we have to take them to the Lord in prayer and not only do pray for them, but we pray, oh Lord, this child needs a certain example. Would you make me that example? Would you help me highlight the grace that they need? Would you develop in me, oh God, these strengths and graces? Would you beautify my life, my wife's life? Would you help us display your grace and mercy in these same areas so that they can see it? Would you make us an example? Maybe it's the, you know, your speech. The things we say, the things, how maybe, maybe particularly in how we talk about people. One of the things in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican was what? The contempt they had for others. Pride, arrogance, being judgmental. Not only do we come into the world with these propensities, beloved, is it not on display in the parents? We wonder why children don't enjoy church when all the parents do in private is complain about the church. And I'm not diminishing, I'm not diminishing problems. But what we need to understand from this text this morning is we need to understand that those little children look, they're looking at us. Because God made them to follow our example. I used to have parents come to me and they'd say, Pastor, what do we do? What can we do to help our children love the Lord's day? We, we, they complain all day. Oh, we got to go to church. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, we got to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that, that's, that children do that. And as a young pastor, I thought, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean is, there, is there a one, two, three method here? I mean, is there a one, two, three step program we can go through? I, I, no, I don't think so. And this was my answer. Well, you love the Lord's day. You love the Lord's day. Now, that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted a one, two, three program. You know, let's do ABC and, and that, that was going to straighten them right up. But I said, no, I said, what you need to, you need to display before them an earnest, genuine enjoyment and love for the Lord's day. And there are several ways you can do that. You know, we had a big dessert day on Sunday. We made the Lord's day special. We made the Lord's Day unique. We set it apart. And we, we talked about it. We, we longed for it. We looked for it. To create in our children what this earnest desire to want, want to get to the Lord's Day. But more than anything, other than the dessert, I mean, you can float that to the little ones. Well, even some of the big ones. But more than that, that's where we go to commune with the Lord in a very unique and special way with our brothers and sisters. We come to sit in his presence. We come to hear his word explained to us so that we can walk with him. And you want to walk with him. You want the Lord to continue to to pour out that grace upon you 
So we have to be an example to our children. And, and then there's another way we take our children to the Lord, and that's in discipline. Now, dis, now look, discipline is a derivative of disciple. It's not a negative term. It's positive. We've made it negative. When we think about discipline, we're like, oh, discipline. I got to be disciplined or you mean you're going to discipline me? I mean, it's, it's turned into a negative statement, but it's positive. There's this discipleship that takes place with the enforcement of discipline. To be disciplined, to cultivate uh, disciplined attitudes, the, uh, discipline, discipline mindset, discipline obedience, if you will. Why? Well, with help, with help. The Holy Spirit is going to use the parent in the life of the little one to help cultivate godly habits, godly ways, and all the while learning to praise God along the way. You, brothers and sisters, the saint, look, Worship is at the heart of every believer, and it is worship that should be at the heart of your children. But you have to cultivate, foster that. You've got to fan that. You've got to aid that. You've got to help that. And it's not easy. But you lean and rest upon the promises of God for it. Because it's not your skill set as a parent that's going to save your children. You can't save your children. I can't save my children. Only God can save them. And we must live in a way that fosters that very rule. Only God can save you. God is your aid. The Holy Spirit is your helper. Jesus is your savior. There's no one else to turn to because there's no one else for mom and daddy to turn to either. How else? Well, not just in example and prayer and discipline, but brothers and sisters expounding on that, but in education. They need to be taught the things of God. That's the purpose of learning to read, read the Bible. That's the motivation for learning how to read. Teacher, you know, the, the, the whole purpose of, of learning how to read is so that one may sit down and commune with God in his word. I'll give you a testimony. When I first started pastoring a church down in Macon, there was a, a news article in the paper of a gentleman, I, I believe he was in his 80s, did not, he was illiterate, did not know how to read. And the article was about someone taking up the time to teach him to read, which they did, and he learned. And the article, and then the, um, the journalist asked the question, why did, I mean, you know, 80-something years old, I mean, why did you want to learn how to read? His quote was, because I wanted to read the Bible for myself. That's why he wanted to learn how to read at 80-something years old. I've been told what the Bible says all my life. 
But I wanted to learn how to read so I could pick it up and read it for myself. Commendable. And God blessed it. So don't ever say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It all depends on the motivation of the old dog. If you want to, you will. If you want to, you'll do it. But we must educate our children. I mean, listen, education is a glorious thing. It can be used for both good and bad. We want an educated posterity. We want our children to be educated. We want our children understanding the sciences. We want our children understanding the way this world works. But we want them to understand it from a Christian worldview. We want them to understand it from the covenant perspective of of the one who rules over the heavens and the earth, of the one who is the only savior of men. And guess what? Nothing in scripture contradicts true and real science, but does nothing but uphold it. We teach our children when it comes to education, don't be embarrassed to be a Christian in these things. You have nothing to be embarrassed about if we do our job, right? Why? Because all along the way, we have certainly laid that foundation of grace. And they understand if they've been taught a Christian worldview, they know who the enemies are. Well, Satan, the world, and their flesh, right? But brothers and sisters, we ought to bring our children, we ought to bring our children to Jesus. Now, let me enforce this lesson with a negative. And it's not that I plan to end the sermon on this, but I want it to be in your mind. God doesn't view all children this way. Okay? God doesn't view every child this way. The children of his covenant this way there are numerous there are dozens of places in scripture I'm going to just give you a few of them that speak to this and and then what am I doing I'm enforcing the positive with this negative when I sit here and tell you that your household is one of grace it's special what makes your household special God's grace makes it special not who you are But God's grace makes your household special. Think about the families in Egypt who suffered the plagues. Were there not children in Egypt? Did God treat the Egyptians the way he treated his covenant people? He did not. God protected his covenant people in Goshen while those plagues were poured out upon the nation of Egypt. So that's one. Well, what about within the covenant community? Korah, number 16 in his household and followers. You see, beloved, what I'm, listen, faith is a special thing. Saving faith sanctifies your home. Don't abuse it. Don't ignore it. But unbelief also sanctifies your home. 
Korah was an unbelieving Israelite who was completely jealous of Moses. And God judged him in his posterity. Just as we talked about earlier, isn't it a great motivation for you to come to Christ this morning? Because God will receive you and your children. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy children. Acts 16. Achan and his family. Joshua 7. 1 Kings 14. God judged the house of Jeroboam for his idolatry, cutting off what? his posterity. Well, let's go to the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. This is a husband and wife. The possibility of a mother and father, gone. Gone. God takes unbelief seriously. And brothers and sisters, just as the curse lies upon unbelief, it lies upon an unbelieving household. Proverbs 3. So there is a special favor and privilege that comes with a believer and his household. What I want us to do this morning is recommit ourselves to that favor and that grace. I want us to recommit ourselves to, to the to the reality that God brings our children into covenant with himself. And in due time, what are we pleading? That the Lord would save these children the same way he saved us. Let's pray. You know, Father, we thank, we, we, we thank you for the text this morning and this, the reality of the covenant and its headship, and what it means to bring our children to Christ. Father, we do not lean upon our own works, our own parenting skills. We don't lean upon uh, uh, any of that whatsoever, but we lean solely upon your saving grace. Lord, we plead that grace in our homes. Maybe, Lord, even for our grandchildren, we, we, we have children that are walking in your ways and now we have grandchildren. Lord, we pray that same grace for our grandchildren that they too would be raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they too would never know a day of rebellion and apostasy, that they would grow up in the ways of Jesus and they would, they would walk faithfully in those paths because his hand is upon them. Lord, we can't develop a three-step process to making our children Christians and forgive us if we tried, Lord. We do not want to raise legalists, but we want to raise lovers of Christ, lovers of Jesus, lovers of the word. Lord, we want to raise children that are dependent upon his grace just as we are. So, Lord, just as your word tells us that the true seed of Abraham are those who have faith. Lord, so the true seeds will continue in our own 
lineage and our own posterity will be those children that profess faith in Christ. Lord, if there's children, Lord, among our membership or the children of, our, of any of the parents here that have strayed, that have gone astray, Lord, this morning we say a prayer for them. We ask you, O oh Lord, bring them home. Bring them to Christ, Lord. Work in their hearts this saving grace, Lord. Remove the scales and the blinders and the rebellion, Lord. Remove the hard hearts that, Lord, they have cultivated. And, Lord, have mercy upon them, O oh God. Bring them home to yourself, Lord. Grant them faith and repentance, Lord, and faithfulness. And restore that fellowship, O oh Lord, that they've abandoned Lord, that they have forsaken and broken with their families. Oh, Lord, we plead this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.